Welcome to the Writing to Get Business podcast, where you'll get tips to expand your writing skills. Every week, you'll hear tips and strategies to support your writing. Pat Iyer is your show hostess, a ghostwriter, editor, and author who has written 48 books. Sit back, relax, and listen. Here's your hostess, Pat Iyer. Hi, this is Pat Iyer with Writing to Get Business. I am so pleased to bring to you a man whose book is having a birthday today. Meet John Saunders, who is the author of the book called The Optimizer, and it is literally live as of last night at 11 o'clock. So this is the first full day of his book's new existence. And what better way to start the day and the birthday than to talk about the book and the journey that John went through to write his book. John, welcome to the show. Pat, good morning. Thanks for having me on this big day. Tell the listener, what is your book about? What is the, the big message behind why you put this book together? You know, I spent about 23, 24 years working on Wall Street in sales and sales leadership. And what I found over that time was there were so many people that never really got to unleash their gifts, if you will, their full talent. And what I, the, the conclusion I came to th- over those years in writing, researching for my book was that people are largely afraid of change. And I think they've got re- good reason to be afraid of change because anyone who's spent some time in, in different businesses knows that change often doesn't always bring positive news. And so what I saw was many people living in this, this sort of, not unleashing, not releasing their gifts to the world. And I think they all have great gifts to give and because they lived with these emotional barriers. And if you can create as a leader, if you can create an environment where people feel emotionally safe to take those risks, you can really allow them to, to showcase themselves. And I wanted to find a way, and I spent a lot of time developing this method and again, researching for the book and doing dozens of interviews, I wanted to find a way to help them unleash that gift. And what I found was the best way to do that was to take them through, you, know, you need to lead change as a, you need to drive change as a leader, but incremental change can help create that safe space along with a number of other strategies, but people can take small steps and it's the big steps that are a problem. But if you can get them to take a series of small steps, sooner or later, a big step has occurred and, but they can get there in a much more safe space emotionally. And does your book share strategies on how you take those little steps? That's very much what the book is about. Uh, how do you, you know, what does this mindset look like that you're trying to develop? And then how do you develop trust to make that happen? Because none of this happens without building trust with your team members. And then what are some of the strategies to deepen that trust and then really help your team break out of that shell? Very much so. My image of Wall Street is driven by probably images that are, are correct of, and not current for sure, but people crammed into a room shouting with their arms raised. There's some bell that goes off and there's panic that is appearing. I think of it as a very frenetic type of activity. Uh, people who are doing day trading in particular are caught up in that enormous adrenaline rush does that leave space for team development and communication and humanity? Or do I have a totally one-sided picture of what it's like to be in that environment? 
There's a, a fair amount to unpack there, Pat, but uh, short answer, I, I think it does. Uh, I think it does leave space for growth and innovation and, and a key part of the book and that, that, uh, uh, that stereotype that you just described there I, certainly exists to some degree. I was very fortunate to work with a, with a firm that really didn't have that type of culture. Uh, and you know, there, certainly there are others, but what, what the book is really about is having this mindset to allocate, right? You do have to run your business from day to day, but really what the book is about is finding space in your business plan quarter to quarter, year to year with allocating time to how do we, how do we get better at what we do? Uh, and that's a, a, a big part of what it's about. So it's not trying to create radical change all the time. It's, Hey, yes, we do have to manage our business that we've built over time, but how do we allocate space and how do we keep our team members in that mindset to allocate space and resources to driving this change. And, and that's really what the book is about. And, uh, and, but more importantly, building that trust and happy to share a story about that. If, if that would be of interest. Please do. You know, one of the uh, things, uh, I've, a question I've come across a number of times is, you know, gosh, if, if trust is kind of stagnant in our organization and we, we feel like we're sort of stuck, how do we break out? And my answer to that question is quite simple. You know, start small. And as a leader, you have to be the one that extends that olive branch. I, I don't think it's up to your team members to come to you and say, hey, we need to build trust here. I don't think that conversation is going to happen too many times. So it's incumbent upon the leader to, to begin that journey, if you will. And I'll never forget one of the uh, biggest transformations in my career was, uh, it was about a year into my leadership uh, career after many years as a sales executive. And I, I began reaching out to my team. And this was a strategy I learned as a sales, a sales guy to reach out to my clients and say, hey, what's it, this, what's it like working with me? How could I improve our relationship? How could I be a better partner to your business? And I took that idea that I got from a peer and transferred it into a leadership role. So I'm about a year into leadership. It was a remote team, interestingly, because this was pre-epidemic, uh, but that's how the team was set up. And I reached out to one of my senior guys that had been around a long time. And I said, hey, how can we better communicate? I feel like we're not communicating well as a team and developing the synergies I think are possible here. And he said, and I, I'm not gonna quote exactly what he said, but I'll paraphrase it because it wasn't very nice. But he said, we have too many conference calls. And I thought about it for a minute and said, I looked at the calendar, you know, and I just kind of carried on the tradition we had had for years, conference calls every other Monday and some in between. So I looked at the calendar and realized if I just knocked out the ones around holidays, Memorial Day, Labor Day, something like this, and instead of pushing it a day forward, I just got rid of it. And I took that simple idea sent out a note to the team. Hey, uh, Brian had this interesting idea. I thought we'd pilot it. Let's have fewer calls. And then boom, they saw all these invites drop off their calendar. So at this time, I had already been asking them for this feedback, but it wasn't really, I wasn't getting much yet. And that simple act of knocking out conference calls just radically altered the level of engagement I got from the team in terms of when I asked them for feedback, how much better it became. But interestingly, at the end of the year, <clears throat> you know, I said it was a pilot for that year to have these fewer calls. At the end of the year, I asked the team on the last call of the year, I said, hey, we had these fewer calls. Uh, should we bring them back next year? And I think, Pat, that was the moment in my life when I learned the true meaning of the silence was deafening. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, uh, bonus prize, after doing that, I actually saw engagement in those calls go up because we had fewer of them. So people realized, oh, we're not going to have as many chances to have these conversations. So I actually saw people leaning in much more. So mm -hmm. it had... And that really was the turning point for people starting to engage in feedback. You're reminding me of when I had daily staff meetings in my business and there were times that the eyes would glaze over of my 
employees. And one person said, Pat, do we really have to have meetings every single day? And I, in my infinite wisdom, said, of course we have to have them. <laughs> I should have been talking to you, John, at that point. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, it, it, how do you figure out what people really, how, how do you figure out how people really feel? You ask them. And it's, uh, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a lost art. It's a lost art. <laughs> so you saw these experiences from being in a leadership position. You worked in a highly stressful field. What brought you to the idea of creating a book around these experiences? You know, I had this uh, uh, last summer. I was going through a career transition. My company was sold. I was offered a pretty good deal to leave. So I took that opportunity. And so I was sort of thinking about what am I going to do next? So I met with a good friend, uh, Kamal Bhatia is his name. And we spent some time last summer in midtown Manhattan. I went, I went up to see him. I live in the DC area. And I said, gosh, what should I you know, how should I think about what I want to do next? And he said, why don't you write a paper, you know, leadership paper, try to get it published somewhere, maybe just put it on, if nothing else, put it on LinkedIn. And I thought that's a good idea, sort of as a marketing tool. So I wrote the paper, shared it with a friend, Mike Gottesman, and, and uh, Mike looked at it, said, I think you have a series here. And then you could maybe launch it maybe every week for four weeks or something like that. So I thought that's interesting. So I wrote this, turned it into a series. I started telling people that I was writing this series of papers. And another friend said, hey, you probably, we haven't talked about this yet, but I actually help people, executives write papers for a living and get them published. So he was kind enough to lend me his time for several weeks. Nick Yeager was his name and kind of fine tuned the series over the number of weeks. This is all last fall. And then as sort of the final piece of the puzzle, I went to my, one of my favorite professors at business school, Prashant Malavia, and we had lunch, actually it was about a year ago today. And I said, what, the idea was to look at the papers. What should I do with this? Where should I try to get it published? Uh, things like this. And he said, I think you have the makings of a book here. Mm. And I said, what are you talking about? You know, how do you write a book? <laughs> that really wasn't, uh, I'd sort of thought about it, but I wasn't really tying it to this project. It sort of is a lifetime project. Uh, I thought about it, but not for this one. He said, I know this author coach. And he introduced me to this gentleman. Uh, and you know, that was literally about a year ago today. And I jumped in his program and here I am with a published book. It's incredible. Do you think... Uh, a year is, from your experience, is that a, a typical amount of time from being in connection with the other people who are going through the program? Is that long? Is that short? I'm curious about the gestation, putting it in medical terms. Yeah. Uh, I, I will tell you, it definitely felt like a bit of an aggressive pace. Uh, it felt a lot like business school in that, you know, you just have to make the, you know, three, five, six hours a day and, or several days a week to get it done. Uh, so for me, it worked. And one of the things I found useful about, very useful about how the coaching program was set up, it gave you very hard deadlines. You have to get this much written by this date. And here's an editor, a developmental editor to work with you to get it going and make sure it's kind of fine tuned as you go. Um, so yeah, I, I could have easily dragged it out longer, but mm -hmm. I kind of like the aggressive pace and having sort of a one-year deadline. Uh, so I, I felt it was hard, but it was reasonable. What's your take on that? I have taught a, a course oh, to teach people how to write books. And in fact, I've got one coming up the end of January. I've taught it over a six month period. I've taught it over a three month period. I think the key determinant is how much time a person will commit 
to translating that knowledge into a book and how effectively they deal with the distractions of life. If the goal is to get the book done, then what else in their life needs to be rearranged to complete it? Because it is so tempting to let it slip or postpone or procrastinate or get stuck. And then a week has gone by, a month has gone by, and that momentum disappears. So I would say the people I've worked with, uh, three months is ambitious, six months is doable, probably a year is more typical. And, and just to put a fine point on it, thank you for sharing that. Uh, six months was to get the rough draft manuscript done and then presenting it to a, they, they help you present it to a publisher. And then the next sort of five months is really going through, working, <clears throat> excuse me, working with the publisher to kind of fine tune it. Yes. Do, do revisions. And, uh, you know, I think one of the important things they really coached us through was having this, uh, developing this beta reader team. So sort of dripping the content out slowly to an audience. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure you've had this experience. You have something in your head that you think is, you know, makes perfect sense to you. And then you put it on paper and then you show it to someone else. And they're like, I don't know what you're making, what you're trying to say here. Right. And so it was very useful to have that group of people to read it early. So not just the editors, but, a, you know, a, a group of beta readers to do that. That was really a great part of the experience, I think. I am co-hosting a group called the NSA Writers and we had our or NSA Authors, National Speakers Association Authors. And we had a, a monthly meeting last night, our first one. And one of the people in the group asked about finding beta readers. How many do you need? What's the process? Were you involved in locating beta readers yourself or were they supplied for you through this program? Uh, the the way it was designed was they actually coached you through building that audience. And one of the things that the, the program that I worked with did was they went out and surveyed literally a hundred or so writers and said, if you wrote your, did you, uh, writers that had written two or more books. And they said, did you do anything different on book two versus book one? And the answer emphatically was yes, I engaged my audience much earlier. And so they actually coached us through putting things on LinkedIn and social media and things like this to kind of say, hey, I'm writing a book. And then in fact, uh, as a additional benefit, the beta readers, the way you made them officially beta readers was you actually got them to pre-buy your book. So all of my 250 beta readers bought the book back in July and it's publishing in December. Uh, and so they- 250 beta yeah. readers? Oh, I can wow. promise you- that's a lot of I can promise you a, a very small percentage of them actually went through the process of going through the reading and offering edits, but about five or six people did a very, took a very meaningful approach to it. Uh, but more importantly, you've got this big audience to go out and help you spread the word. And so, yes. So if they weren't, if they didn't have the time and capacity to help with the editing, which was, you know, we were expecting that, but I, you asked them for other things like, Hey, would you reshare my posts or like my posts I put on social media and things like this. And uh, mm -hmm. so there's a number of ways to work with the beta reader community and uh, it proved to be quite, quite powerful. And they funded the entire publishing cost. That's a beautiful thing. You can't argue I, I will with tell that. you when I sat down with my wife to embark upon this journey, we had a conversation about there's no way I'm going to raise this money <laughs> and we're going to be writing a check for the difference between you know, what I raise and the publishing cost. And 
following this process that we worked through, uh, not only did I raise all of the money for publishing costs, but an extra few thousand dollars that I'm using for the book launch events and things like this. Hmm. That's a unique approach, John. And, and different than I expected that you would describe. I have gone to, uh, when I've used beta coaches and the beta readers in the last book that I wrote, which was on networking, I took people in my coaching program and asked them to read the book and I gave it to them in segments and then give me feedback. Um, my experience with reviewers, although different than beta readers, is typically if I ask 10 people to write a review, about eight of them will actually follow through. And the people who do will write nice paragraphs, which is how we got into the topic earlier in the show of, all right, now I've got those paragraphs on my book. Will Amazon produce those reviews? But the beta readers are of a different animal if they are helping you develop your ideas and giving you feedback and actually following through. And it sounds like you got some benefit whether they gave you feedback or not, because they are also potential people to help with your book launch. To write reviews, to tell others about it, to help with social media. So that's, yeah. Uh, yeah to, I think one of the key lessons I got out of this was not to pigeonhole the beta readers into only one thing that they can help you with. Mm. And uh, some of them, probably one of the best exercises I went through was uh, a number of my interviewees became beta readers as well, if you will, in some capacity, meaning they pre-bought the book, but actually going to them, and this is actually a, a key lesson from the book and, and it was creating this feedback loop and going to them and say, hey, you know, thank you so much for being in my book. It was amazing to have your stories in there, which was 100% true and saying, gosh, I'd love to brainstorm with you on how I might promote this book in the pre-sale campaign and then in the future when it goes on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and what have you. And those 15 or so conversations I had were just extraordinary. And they didn't all generate necessarily a pre-sale uh, opportunity. Some did, some didn't, but it, it created a number of different things to create momentum for the book. So just having that simple conversation, you know, what would you do if you were me in launching this book? And boy, people really engaged in that conversation. And I think the key lesson for me there was people are willing to help you, but they're not going to call you up and say, hey, Pat, I know you've got a book coming out. How can I help you out? They're not going to make that call to you. But if you reach out to them with, and be a bit vulnerable and say, hey, I'd love your help on this, uh, I found that to be a really engaging conversation. Hmm. And since you are directly in the book launch process, can you give us an overview of how you're handling that? What are the activities? What are you doing day by day? Uh, well, first, I thought I would slice my finger on a can of beans this weekend as a way to kick off the week here. I did that just the other day and spent a couple hours in the ER. That was fun, uh, <laughs> which makes typing really, really fun. Uh, <laughs> but really, it's about uh, I see the book launch as a and I did the same kind of concept with the presale launch back in the summertime. I think about it as a, a movie launch, right? When Star Wars puts out a movie, right? You don't see Yoda once, right? You see Yoda on the bags at Doritos at the grocery store and on the cups at McDonald's and all over YouTube. You know, you can't open your eyeballs without seeing Yoda or Han Solo or Darth Vader or what have you. So what I try to do is replicate that in my own universe. And so I use four different social media platforms, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn. And I literally go through a rotation of day by day posting on each different platform. Mm -hmm. And 
you've got to modify the content a bit because each platform sort of consumes differently, if you will. Uh, but trying to put something out there every single day on each across each platform. So this week, in fact, today, I'm going to be putting stuff on all four platforms at once, which is a bit unusual for me, but it's, it's the book's birthday. So I'll do that today. But from then on out, I'm going to rotate through the different platforms. Uh, the other important part to that is creating a series of hashtags relevant for your book. Uh, you know, a lot of people I found don't know that you can go on and figure out how many people follow particular hashtags. LinkedIn, you can just go into the search bar on LinkedIn and punch in hashtag innovation as an example. And it'll say, hey, there's 38 million followers for this. So making sure you have good hashtags, uh -huh. I think is important. And then I try to very strategically tag different people that are in the book or related to the book or help me with the book on those posts. So when they hit LinkedIn or Facebook or what have you, you know, it shows up on their feed and then that kind of inspires them. And I tell them I'm doing that. So it inspires them to reshare it. So there's a few little strategies you can use around that that I find very, I found very effective. Mm -hmm. Before we started recording, you also talked to me about people who you wanted to contact each day. You had them in different buckets, I think was your word of how you can, how that individual can help promote the launch. Can you give us some details about that piece? So I specifically, and so the last sort of week, week and a half, I've been reaching out to very specific people that I know are active on social media, friends of mine, our beta readers, and I've been giving them a heads up saying, hey, I wasn't exactly sure which day the book launched this week, because as you know, when you go on Amazon, it doesn't sort of happen automatically, it can take a couple of days. So I reached, I specifically called these people directly and good friends and beta readers and said, hey, my book's going to go live on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, I'm going to tag you on different posts. When you see that, please make an effort to reshare them, comment on it, and please go on and write a review on Amazon. So it was very specific and targeted outreach. And tell our listener, you've got this book. How does this tie into your business and what you want to do with the book? What's the next stage for you? I appreciate you asking that. So ironically, just like the book was a series of optimi optimizations to, to become what it is, uh, throughout this journey, uh, I found a lot of people intrigued by the lessons in it. And so I hate to say it, but almost by accident, uh, I've developed a coaching business as people have said, gosh, that's a really interesting topic your book is about. Could you come work with me about work with me to help develop that for my uh, executive coach? I work with some book authors. I work with a couple of startups. Uh, so it's turned into this, this coaching business, which has been amazing uh, and just incredible. And if uh, people are interested, they're more than welcome to go on my website and schedule a 30-minute consult with me, which is completely complimentary and I'm happy to discuss if it sounds like it makes sense for us to work together. JohnCSaunders.com is that website. And could you repeat that again? Certainly. Uh, John is uh, John C, my middle initial, JohnCSaunders.com. And we'll spell Saunders for the people who are listening to this. It's S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S. Thank you. JohnCSaunders.com. Thank you. Coaching program based on the concepts is a fascinating way to repurpose the knowledge and the effort that went into this. Do you feel like you learned things along the way in this process of writing the book? And if so, what were they? Uh, wow. Uh, boy, the short answer, yes. Uh, long answer, uh, <laughs> we could go on for a while. But it was fascinating for me 
Uh, well, I started out with this book, the whole concept on leadership. It evolved to innovation because I realized after some time that innovation and leader, driving innovation and leadership are inextricably linked. They just, if you're a leader, you have to drive innovation and change. Otherwise, within no time, you're going to be irrelevant. And in the book, I actually dive pretty deeply into the data around that because uh, it's, 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 it's out there. And <clears throat> then as it evolved, uh, as I interview more and more people, I'll never forget interviewing a Microsoft executive. And I said, how do you think about innovation? And he said, innovation is optimization. And I actually challenged him and said, what are you talking about that? And after we debated it for a minute or two, I realized, oh my gosh, this is how I have thought about it all of these years. I've thought about this in terms of serial optimization. How do you get more efficient and effective all the time? But I never captured it under one word. And that conversation really did it for me. So that was sort of one big breakthrough. Mm -hmm. Another one was this concept of vulnerability. I mean, to, to, to learn, to grow, you have to put yourself out there and let the world know, people around you know that, hey, I'm not perfect and I can certainly use your help in evolving what I'm trying to do here. And boy, do I have some really interesting examples of vulnerability in the book. Uh, happy to share one or two of them if you'd like. And vulnerability, a focus on excellence, uh, customer-centric, and really being a problem solver. Uh, those are the key elements in my view and my research of the, of the mindset of the optimizer. And, and I certainly had these thoughts in my mind, but going through this interview process really solidified those four pillars, if you will, as the key elements of this mindset. And then the importance, and I can't stress this enough, the importance of building trust. And because again, none of these things are going to happen without trust. People live, people fear change. And that's been around. That's not a new phenomenon. Uh, one of the stories I open up, uh, uh, one of the opening stories to a chapter is about a guy thrown in jail in 1636 for being deemed an innovator by the King of England. Hmm. He said, you're an innovator. We don't need that around here. Get, you know, we don't need change. And they threw him in jail. And I, I was so happy to find that story because I feel like sometimes people think of this, whatever the phenomenon is you're thinking about, it's only happening now. This is 400 years ago. So this is nothing new. So that really helps solidify my thinking as well, that this is such an important part of the puzzle. You have to drive change, but without building that trust and creating in a safe space emotionally for people, you're not gonna get very far. Makes me think of the headline that I saw just last night of the woman who felt that Florida was underreporting the coronavirus numbers and she believe she was terminated from her job and her home was just raided by the police oh, because she was still sharing information, trying to get people to realize that there was a great disparity. And now she's in trouble for using the email system of her former employer when her whole goal was to help people understand the real news about what was going on. Not wow. an innovator, but more of a whistleblower, which um, has never been a popular position this century or 400 years ago. Oh, you know, by the way, the king is doing something illegal with grabbing money from the serfs that live in the fields. Oh, we don't need you to talk about that. If, if uh, for those that uh, read the book, you will read the rest of the story about Henry Burton. And it was very much about challenging the power of the king is what it really came down to. Always a dangerous thing. Yeah. Wow. Um, one of the questions that came up last night in our NSA 
authors meeting was when you do interviews with people and put them in the book, do you get signed permission forms for them to be able to share that information with their name or do you make those stories anonymous? How did you handle that in your book? You know, what I did there was I, I did it over email. So I sent people a specific note said, hey, can I use your first and last name? Some people said yes. Some people said, please just use my first name. Uh, in some cases, I actually made up the name. So it kind of varied from person to person, but specific outreach. I sent them all notes and said, hey, you know, I want to put I want to put your story in the book. But, you know, what are you willing to let me do here? Mm -hmm. I've talked with a woman who is going to hire me to edit her book on stories of people who have gone through traumatic brain injury. She herself is a therapist who went through a traumatic brain injury, and she wrote most of her book before she was injured. And we've talked about how does she track down people, although a little different situation, but some of them were people she treated 20 years ago. Does she change the details? Does she use their name? Does she manipulate the information in some way so that it's not identifiable? It's an interesting point because individuals love stories and the stories that you've included in your book are there to make specific points. And you want the value of the stories, but you also have the trust factor that you alluded to earlier of, I just talked to John and all of a sudden, you know, he's included stories in the book that I didn't want. And you don't want that breaking of trust. I was very careful about, uh, very careful about what was included and how things were framed for sure. Uh, Cause I didn't want to put anyone in a bad light. Do you have one last parting piece of advice for somebody who is in the process of writing a book, something that you felt made a big difference for you in getting through the process? Wow. I feel like there, there's so many answers to that question, but I think if just keep digging more deeply, keep looking, keep searching. I mean, some of my favorite outcomes, some of my most extraordinary outcomes of this whole journey have been just researching the book and expressing interest in it and being curious. So one of my one of my uh, most voracious beta readers was a gentleman in Finland, Jesse Diamondin, who wrote a paper that was highly relevant to my book. I found him literally online researching the book, found this paper, sent him a note and said, hey, your research you've done is very relevant to a book I'm writing. I'd love to talk to you. And that was probably back in July or June. And just, you know, finding interesting and finding interesting content, being curious and reaching out to people and trying to get people that are uh, doing similar work engaging in your journey has been just incredibly powerful. And I've got several more of those stories. Uh, but I, I, I really like that one because here's a guy in Finland who doesn't know me from anybody. And I would argue, you know, we've become pretty good friends over this process. He was one of my best beta readers. We've communicated a number of times uh, and he's just been really helpful in editing and throughout this journey. So be curious, do a lot of research, and you know, follow your passions. And I think you'll come up with something amazing. And I know your book is gonna be amazing. Let's tell our listener again, the title of the book, where they can find it, how they can connect with you if they've got more questions or wanna take advantage of that generous offer of the 30 minute chat with you to see if you would be a good fit to work with them. Thank you. Yeah, it's called The Optimizer, Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators. Uh, it's available on Amazon today. It will be on pretty much any other platform where you buy books online in the next couple of days. Uh, if they want to 
go through and, and uh, explore that consult. John C. Saunders, S-A-U-N-D-E-R-S, johncsaunders.com is my website. And I'd be happy to have a chat with them and yeah, see if there might be a good fit. Perfect, John. Thank you so much. You've given us a, a great perspective on the process of thinking about the topic of your book that flowed from your work as a leader, as you worked with people and you saw that need for incremental change and improvement and how that helps to move that organization through that whole process to get better outcomes for everyone. And you've also shared with us a, a systematic way of using beta readers, which I found fascinating, having them pre-buy your book, which gave you the funds to help with the publishing process. And in the act of becoming your beta reader, they either gave you feedback or they made commitments to you to help promote the book when it is launched. You're coordinating that process even as we speak between social media posts, contacting the beta readers and using all of those vehicles to get attention and reviews. I've shared the detail that if you get 101 reviews that kicks the algorithm on Amazon so that it puts your book into a bestseller status after checking to make sure that your reviews are not Susan Saunders, Jill Saunders, Tom <laughs> Saunders, Fido Saunders, <laughs> uh, those things that will trick that, that you're attempting to trick the algorithms get picked up. And I'm fascinated also, and I know that our listener will be as well, with how the knowledge that you built up to write the book and then developed by the process of writing the book naturally led to opportunities for coaching and consulting and working with people to help take your The Optimizer concepts and bring them into their lives to help them with their transitions developing new knowledge, new skills, new businesses, new ways of doing things. So it fits together in a very nice flow from working in the stock market in Wall Street in that crowded environment that I alluded to in the beginning of the show to here you are helping other people with the knowledge that you created. Well, I really appreciate you saying that and just going through this process. The other thing it did for me, Pat, was help me figure out what I really enjoy doing, and that is coaching and helping people become better at what they do. And so it, it really, it's just all kind of come together nicely. And the book is certainly the center point of that. So thank you for sharing all the, that great summary. You're welcome. Once again, the title of the book, and I'm looking at my screen so I don't get this wrong. The Optimizer, Building and Leading a Team of Serial Innovators by John Saunders. Be sure to get your copy by going to Amazon. Be sure to come back next week for a new topic, a new guest, and tell your friends who are writing books or thinking about writing books that they should check out Writing to Get Business podcast. We also have on our website at patire.com a button that you can click to request the transcripts of our shows so that if you prefer to read rather than listen, we've got you covered. Thanks so much. This has been Pat Iyer. Thank you for listening to the show. And thank you, John, for being the guest on the show. Thank you so much, Pat. It was a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Check out Pat Iyer's resources for writers at writingtogetbusiness.com. 
That is W-R-I-T-I-N-G-T-O-G-E-T-B-U-S-I-N-E-S-S dot com. Coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs work with Pat so they can get more business by writing and sharing their expertise. Check out Pat's resources on writingtogetbusiness.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.